It's April 24th, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. This is Christopher Millard. In 1962, at the age of 10, my mother took me to hear the New York Philharmonic perform at the old Showmart building on the PNE site in Vancouver. Some of you may remember that dilapidated old structure as the home of countless trade shows and as the place you went to for the annual fair to gawk at everything from new kitchen gadgets to the latest in car wax. Well, that night, it was transformed by the presence of this famous orchestra and its charismatic conductor, Leonard Bernstein. I was sitting very near the front, and I remember being mesmerized by the calisthenics and the concentration of Lenny as he led his orchestra through a stirring performance. I think it was probably the Fifth Symphony of Shostakovich, but to my astonished ten-year-old self, that was merely a detail. It was the sound, the magic, and the fame. What an introduction to symphonic music. You know, I'm always fascinated to hear from musicians and music lovers alike about their earliest inspiring moments with classical music. Not surprisingly, for many of us baby boomers, it was the Chuck Jones cartoons pitting bugs against Elmer in an animated Wagnerian Goethe-Dammerung. Or perhaps the moment when, after tedious years of piano lessons, we actually heard a real artist and understood the heights that could be achieved with just a little more work. But it's the experience of hearing a symphony orchestra live and bathing in the astounding colors of the instruments and the sheer power of it all that it's most often remembered as the exposure that lit a lifetime flame of interest. Lenny Bernstein easily caught my attention 40 years ago in my childhood world of three black-and-white TV channels, no transistor radios, and the closest thing I had to a computer was my big sister's slide rule. Did I mention I had only one working parent? That we listened to a daily CBC radio program at school? That our grade three teachers taught us who Beethoven was? And that though we worried about the Russians, we knew we would still have to do homework in the fallout shelters? Well, on today's NACOcast, the subject is one that's held to be of universal importance by any orchestra on the continent, that of educational concerts. What do you do to get the kids interested? How on earth do you pull today's kids away from video games, computers, the 500-channel television universe, and maybe the five-second attention span? Well, to talk about this challenge, I've asked the National Arts Centre's principal youth and family conductor, Boris Brott, to join me. Boris Brott is one of the most internationally recognized Canadian conductors, holding major posts as music director in Canada and the U.S., He enjoys an international career as a guest conductor, an educator, a motivational speaker, and a cultural ambassador, and he has a particular commitment to the development of new audiences and young artists. Internationally, Boris has served as assistant conductor to the New York Philharmonic under Lenny Bernstein, and is music director and conductor for the Royal Ballet, Covent Garden, the Northern Sinfonia, and the BBC Welsh. He founded his own Brought Music Festivals in 1988 and the National Academy Orchestra in 1989. Boris is also the conductor and music director of L.A.'s other great orchestra, the New West Symphony. 
as well as music director of the McGill Chamber Orchestra in Montreal. Boris brought Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts with the New York Philharmonic stand among his greatest achievements. His televised programs introduced an entire generation to the joys of classical music. Now, you served as an assistant conductor to the Philharmonic under Bernstein. Do you think his approach would work today with kids? I think his approach does work today with kids. Uh, I would say that I certainly, in my approach with kids, try to emulate what he does. Uh, what he did. I say does because for me, he's still alive so much so because of his his work and his recordings and what I remember of him and uh, the the wonderful connection that we had. There is a difference, however, and the difference is that the the public he was talking to, the, the generation of children he was talking to, were people who were exposed to music in schools. And today, this is far less the case. So you have to start back a few paces. And uh, I think that he had the wonderful facility of making the most complex things simple. I remember he did a program where he was trying to explain about harmony. Uh, Well, he he compared it to a baseball diamond with a tonic being home plate. And the further away you got from home plate, the more the tension was, the more people people on the bases, the more the tension was to return back to home and score uh, a point. So, I mean, that's the sort of thing that he would do uh, in order to make things that are otherwise complex seem simple. He had an everyman's approach for which he was roundly criticized. Was he criticized because it was considered too lowbrow at the time? I think he was considered, yes, I think they did consider it too lowbrow, too simplistic. And yet, by today's standards, it seems a very sophisticated form of music education. Without any question. Part of the challenge that all of us in symphony orchestras throughout North America, and to some extent in Europe too, are dealing with, is the chronic cutbacks in education, and especially in arts education in elementary schools. Kids are not given as much ex- exposure in most jurisdictions as they were 40 years ago. So certainly that's a problem. And the other problem that we have, without question, is dealing with a different kind of consciousness, a different kind of attention span among young people. To the former issue, music education, because symphony orchestras within communities don't really have much power over the budgets and long-term planning of the departments of education, the best that they can hope to do is create intelligent and approachable and affordable school programming. So talk to me about the kinds of ideas that you've been pursuing in the last few years. In many ways, uh, you say these as problems. I I guess maybe this is because I have pursued a career as a motivational speaker as well as a conductor, that I look at them as, as opportunities. The quality of education, though there was a quantity of it, people were introduced to music in the elementary schools by itinerant music teachers. The quality of it was, to put it in a very charitable way, variable. But we have an opportunity to do it in a very professional way. Uh, so that they are getting the very best in resources, so that they are hearing people who are themselves inspired. Music is more prevalent today and more necessary today to young people, or I would say to people of all ages, than probably ever before, and also more deliverable. I mean, and no, no self-respecting kid who's got a bit of resource wouldn't have an iPod or some device that he that he inserts he or she inserts into their ears and listens to on a regular basis. So we've got to figure out a way how to get into those iPods and how to do it, not, not to insert it in a, in, a, in, in a forced manner, but for the kids to really want to see and want to hear us. And a lot depends upon how we present ourselves. What kind of composers and what period do you, do you find is the easiest way to stand up in front of a group of kids and get them hooked? Kids 
really are into modern sounds, into contemporary sounds, into different sounds. Their vocabulary of sounds is very much expanded from what we as adults, particularly those of us who are steeped in a musical tradition, music of the European West. When we look today and with our ability to, to com- communicate globally, uh, the, the word music has a much more expanded uh, vocabulary. The, in a way, what we want to do is open ears. Uh, that's what I try to do or like to try to do. Often I'm I'm hampered, I'm prevented by doing so uh, the way in which I would like perhaps to do so in an ideal world by the fact of having to sell the concerts. And the people who are buying the concerts are parents and teachers. And so they think, well, you know, if you play Tchaikovsky or Mussorgsky or, or Rachmaninoff to a kid, well, you know, that's music that they will love and they will immediately have an emotional attachment to. But that's the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, they'd have a much greater attachment to a work of Vivaldi or a work of, of um, a contemporary Canadian composer or American composer or Chinese composer. It's the sounds that grab them. It's also what the, what their ears have become used to. I mean, it's kind to say, well, kids may have eclectic um, tastes in music and be exposed to world music and all that, but at its simplest I see kids who are with their iPods on four or five hours a day and they're listening to hip-hop or they're listening to rap. There's a constant backbeat. There's a constant wall of sound, whether it's uh, synthesized or not. And we bring them in the concert hall and that backbeat is gone. The volume is gone. And we're left with a quiet oral environment. What, what grabs them most? You say Vivaldi. Is it because of the clarity of that music? Yes, I think it has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with the fact that if you're talking about young people in a developmental stage, and what I mean by, by that is, you know, the most difficult age to grab between the ages of 12 and 20. And those kids are going through an emotional upheaval in their lives. They are, they are discovering themselves. They're, uh, the, the whole idea of, of romantic intention is about the furthest thing from their minds from a musical perspective. Yeah, I find this very interesting that you see such a correlation between classicism as opposed to romanticism as being the way to grab the kids. I mean, if we took a, if we took a Mozart symphony and put a, a backbeat to it, put a percussion set, a drum kit to it, would that uh, speak to them quicker than a Rachmaninoff symphony? Not necessarily. I don't think so. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they, the, one of the things you find about young people is that they're incredibly honest. They are very forthright, and they're going to let you know right away if they think you're pandering to them. And and I think that I I think that's pandering to them. Uh, I think you present Vivaldi as Vivaldi, but I think it's commitment, it's involvement by the people doing it. Do you remember a few weeks ago? Uh, and I realize this is dating it, but it doesn't matter. It could be any week. We had a young man come and play a Mozart concerto, a very serious Mozart concerto. His name was Jan Jan Lisiak, I believe. Uh, he was about 11 years old. He was from Calgary. And uh, we had heard him on tour and, and were impressed by him.
whole audience was absolutely wrapped in attention. Uh, and he got an, an ovation, a standing ovation that was totally spontaneous. And, and the thing that ha- happened there, Boris, of course, is that the kids identified with, some, with, a, with a peer, someone in their own age group, and you know, someone who, who was, you know, looked sort of cool and had a good onstage demeanor. They, had the performance been given by a 40-year-old pianist, the same performance, it wouldn't have meant the same thing, would it? No, probably not. Although, I'm not, again, I'm not sure. I'm constantly amazed at the ability of people who have no background, no knowledge, no expertise, who can't read a note, who don't really understand anything about it, with their ability to identify when they, something is extraordinary and something is very meaningful. Yeah. And I mean, we weren't talking about pyrotechnics. We were talking about a very subtle communication, which really doesn't show itself in an obvious way. And yet, the entire audience was were captivated by this individual because of a because of the sense I think of their commitment, and I think we need to one of the thing one of the greatest challenges in orche- an orchestral presentation is that the players themselves appear committed and involved, and and really into what they're doing, yeah. and and physically into what they're doing. In many ways, we put a lot of of, of barriers between ourselves and they. If you look at it on an evening concert basis, the way we dress, for example, it looks so staid and old-fashioned. And I think we need to change that. I don't think we need to become all of a sudden rock stars. But in the way in which we, we love the music that we do and show it, yes, I think we need to be rock stars. But on the other hand, bringing kids into a theater like the National Arts Center or to any major concert hall and seeing an orchestra dressed in black there is a certain magic, there's a certain mystery to it that grabs kids more than they would be grabbed if, if you were sending a group out to their high school gym. I don't know that I would agree with you. Really? In a way, coming to their territory and, and being right there with them is almost more impressive. It's certainly closer to them, and this is one of the reasons why the Nacotron is so important, in the sense that it, it, it has the potential to amplify what we do in a very personal way with a person in the last seat of the second or third balcony. That, of course, is the video presentation yes. on stage. I think, you know, I think it's, I think what we're doing here, though, is vital. I see every time we, you know, look, look at the success we had when we took these concerts into smaller centers in, in their own auditoria, in, you know, in high school auditoria or the ones that were, you know, the local auditoria in places like, like Grand Prairie and some of the places we were on tour last year. I think in many ways it's, it's, it has an, uh, certainly an equal effect of bringing them into a large concert hall. It, both are, both, look, as long as the kids are exposed to this in a positive sense, it doesn't matter where it is as far as I'm concerned. There are advantages to both. Yep. In the last 30 years, in the time that I've been in working in symphony orchestras, I have sensed, um, first of all, there was a fear of the ability to communicate and to communicate with kids and to design programs that were effective and interesting to them. And one of the things, one of the traditions that has sprung up in the last generation are those people who specialize as children's performers. You have Magic Circle Mime Company, you have Platypus Theater. There's a whole group of... of youth performers who have created um, shows that go with symphony orchestras. How have you felt their impact? What has their impact been? It's variable. In some instances, I really worry that we become wallpaper. 
that we become background to something that's funny, amusing, uh, that tickles the senses of younger kids, but that has really nothing to do with who and what we are. It doesn't really feature the orchestra. It puts the orchestra into the role of being, of being background music. In its best form, it can make a connection and can make a wonderful connection because I think somehow the world of drama, the world of verbal communication and, and visual communication has become so prevalent in our world. I mean, we, we, we watch television. We are, we're used to a, a streaming of information that's coming at us in a visual sense. Well, certainly, for example, one of our most recent children's shows was uh, Peter Duchenne's production with Platypus, in which he and his uh, partner uh, staged a really remarkably imaginative and musically informative uh, presentation about Mozart and Beethoven. Yeah, about the history of, of, of basically, it was a tracing of the history of classical Western music. It was a digest, wasn't it? And it was a digest of material that the kids don't necessarily get at school anymore. Oh, absolutely. And I thought it was fabulous. Uncle! Hmm? Hi, Uncle! Uh, it's me! Becky! Ah, yes. Well, hello, Becky. Uncle, I need your help. Ah, well, you see, I'm rather busy right now. You see, I have to do this project for school about the history of classical music starting way back before I was even born. Uh, you do not touch that, please. I mean, how am I supposed to do that? Read a book or something? Well, you see, I really don't have time right now. Since you know so much about classical music, maybe you can show me one of your books or encyclopedias. Classical music? Did you say classical music? What a fascinating subject. Why did you say so? I've got Mozart and Mahler. I've got Brahms and Bizet. I've got Chopin and Schumann. I've got Schubert and Schutz. I've got Beethoven. Boris, I know that you grew up in a family of musicians, but do you have a very clear memory of a transformative experience as a, as a child? The moment when you said, oh my God, this is what I have to do for the rest of my life? Absolutely. What was that? It had to do with going to the rehearsals of Sir Thomas Beecham with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. And he was playing uh, the last movement of Jupiter Symphony of Mozart. And he didn't say very much, but he made the whole experience. I remember saying to my parents, my gosh, you know, that was like the greatest birthday party. It made a connection. I realized that this was something I wanted to do very much. And that regardless of what the obstacles were, that, that I was going to go ahead and do that. We all have these really wonderful, magical, personal moments. I, everybody, everybody who comes to a concert has, has some story like that to tell. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that for young people, for young people coming in and just, just uh, you know, we talked uh, earlier about the question of bringing music to the kids directly in the schools, but it's, it's very impressive also for them to enter in as young people into a concert hall like the National Arts Center. I mean, I remember back, when, when I think back, I, I came back later on, I went to, I studied at the Instituto Nacional de Bellas Artes in Mexico City, and uh, I remember being there and th- thinking, when I went into that hall every day to 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 rehearse or whatever in the in the in the main center uh, of how huge and how impressive this hall was, and then I remember coming back as a guest conductor, you know, twenty years later, and and thinking, my goodness gracious, what happened to this place? Did it shrink? <laughs> Boris, if Leonard Bernstein were alive today, would he be spending his time doing podcasts and multimedia on the net? 
Oh, absolutely. I think if you look at the, the telecasts of those young people's concerts, um, every possible advantage of the day was utilized by Lenny in, in planning those. I remember a program in orchestration where he had an entire score painted on the floor of the studio and the various instruments assembled in their position on the score, talking about the visualization that a conductor goes through when you read a score to hear the differences in sound of the various instruments. I mean, he was certainly very much up on the, on the, on the current technology of the day, and I'm sure he would be at the forefront of it today. What I get from you is a sense of immense optimism that we can harness technology and make classical music accessible in ways that we can't even imagine. I very much believe in the potential that we have. We are limited by our own imagination. We're limited by, in my opinion, we're limited by the constructs that we seem to need to develop to control us and to control the behavior of others. And, and those are the things that will limit us, not the potential. The potential is out there, and we, we will. I'm sure we will. There's no way you can... You can't avoid the progress of time and technology. You know, the concept of a recording, for example, is something that is totally sacred, and it was there and it is there for time immemorial. That's changing. We're going back, in fact, in time to the point where it's expendable, that it isn't something that's, that's you know, that you can transfer it to an iPod, and you can listen to it, and then when you're fed up, you can, you can di- dispense with it, and you want to hear the next musical impression or the next musical statement which then goes on to your iPod. People want to buy a concert that they went to the night before and then play it and then, you know, dispense with it uh, a month or a year later. It becomes much more music of the time, and in, in many ways that's more, that's more creative to look forward to. Because if, if, if we're only celebrating the music of the past, then we become a museum. And we're not doing too good a job at being a museum when you compare that with... Uh, other areas of graphic arts, for example, or painting, uh, you know, where people wander museum halls, but they have earphones with all sorts of explanations, and you have interactive uh, activity that illuminates what's going on, what you see, such that, that you understand it better. I remember that there's one, from a musical perspective, there's one, one experience that I, that I had in Vienna recently. I went to the music museum, the modern music museum in Vienna, and on the top floor, the whole Vienna Philharmonic is laid out in video, and you stand on an electronic podium with a baton in your hand, and you conduct the Vienna Philharmonic, and they react to you. They go slower, they go faster, they go louder, they go softer, exactly the way you want them. And at the end, they review your performance, and they either applaud you or they boo you. And I thought, wow, what an experience. This is a safe environment for a young conductor. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Well, as you say, we're very fortunate here at the Arts Center that there is a a top-down commitment to to education, and uh, we certainly appreciate the part that you're playing Well, thank you very much. Boris, thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Listen to the NACOcast for a chance to win an iPod Nano preloaded with recent NAC Orchestra CDs and past episodes of the NACOcast. During the month of May, we'll ask a question that can be answered by listening to an earlier NACOcast episode. Subscribe to the NACOcast to ensure you don't miss the question and your chance to win. You can find instructions on subscribing at nac.ca slash podcast. And of course, you can also find the NACOcast as a free subscription in the iTunes Music Store. 
Just search on NACOCAST. That's N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. So tune in to the NACOCAST for a chance to win an iPod Nano preloaded with some wonderful music from Pinka Zuckerman and Canada's National Arts Centre Orchestra. Don't forget, send us your questions and comments. If we read your feedback on the show, we'll send you a stylish NACOCAST coffee mug. Send your email to nacocast at gmail.com. For the NAC Orchestra, this is bassoonist Christopher Millard.